0: If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Exodus chapter 20, continuing our series going through the Ten Commandments. That's something we started last week, and we'll be in for the next, uh, looks like, eight weeks or so. Uh, through the Ten Commandments. I know I usually will preach through a book of the Bible and just stay in that until we're done, Uh, but I think these ten weeks are going to be helpful for us. So we will be in Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 4 and going through verse 6 this morning, the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Uh, I am someone who has never really felt like I photograph very well. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you feel the same way about yourself sometimes. The angle just always feels like it's a little bit off. Surely my eyes cannot be half closed that often for every single picture to look like I just took Tylenol PM about an hour ago. Uh, I don't know what is my good side for a camera to be on, but I know that no camera has found it yet. Uh, They're still looking to try and find it. And they say the camera adds 10 pounds, but I'm not sure how many cameras are actually on me whenever that particular camera took that picture. There is just not a good image of me anywhere that I've ever looked at and thought, Man, that is a good-looking guy. (laughs) And that's obviously the camera's fault, right? Like, that can't be all on me. Uh, But I think, even though these images don't seem to do us justice, the same thing is happening this morning in the Second Commandment. God commands here that his people should not make for themselves a carved image or any likeness to bow down and serve. And ultimately, I think the reason for that is because no image is going to do him justice for us to be able to worship. But to help us understand this command, we are going to ask and answer the same four questions that we are going to ask and answer of each of the Ten Commandments. The same things we asked last week, the same things we'll be asking for the next eight weeks. Question number one, why is this wrong? Why did God have to give us this commandment? What's wrong with doing this thing? Uh, Question number two, how do we break this commandment? What does that look like for us to sin against God in this way by breaking this commandment? Question number three, how has Jesus fulfilled or transformed this commandment? Because as New Testament Christians, we know that Christ has not only fulfilled the law, but in some instances has transformed it for us. And then finally, question four, what do we do now? How do we today try to obey this command in our lives? So question one, why is having images wrong? What's the problem with an image of God which we use to aid us in our worship of him? Because ultimately, I think that's what God is talking about this morning. That's what the Israelites thought they were doing with the golden calf. In Exodus 32, Moses has been up on Mount Sinai getting the law, getting the Ten Commandments for several chapters. And when he comes down, he finds that the people have created a golden calf to be able to worship. But when Aaron made that calf, he told the people, these are your gods who brought, them out, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he said that as they worshiped them, they should constitute a feast unto the Lord, unto God. So it's not that they created a separate God in their minds to try and worship. It's that they thought by their worship of the golden calf, they were worshiping the same God who brought them out of Egypt, the same God that we worship today. In their minds, this wasn't idolatry because they didn't think they were worshiping any other god. They believed that they were worshiping Yahweh, who was represented by the calf that was made of gold. But God rebuked them, and he was going to destroy them, were it not for the intercession of Moses on the people's behalf. So then why is this wrong? Well, I think we get an answer in our verse today. It's wrong to worship God as represented by anything else, Simply put, because God is a jealous God, verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That's the reason that he gives directly for this commandment. So why is he jealous? What does that actually mean for him to be able to say that? Well, I think we have to see that he's jealous about the people creating images of God to worship because he is the only one who can create his image. That's his job as God. When God in the garden created mankind in Genesis 127, it says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So really for us to create an image which we believe represents God as he truly is, is to encroach on his turf. He's the one who makes his images. He's the one who makes mankind, and we are the only ones, Scripture says, has been made in God's image. He is the image creator, and he's already done that when he made you and me, when he made all of us, male and female. So ultimately, he's jealous because we are stepping on his creation turf. But I think he's also jealous because they're not simply creating an image, they're making a golden cap. They may say that they're actually worshiping God, that they're just using the calf to help them in their worship, to give them a picture of what they think God may be like, but he knows, he can see that if their worship has to come to him through something else, through this calf that they've created, then the worship actually usually doesn't actually continue through that object. It ends on that object. They're not actually worshiping God through the calf. They're just worshiping a calf whenever we get down to it. It can't go through another medium and still get to him. It has to go to him directly for it to be accurately described as worship of him. Last week I mentioned that uh, when we praise and honor God, when we worship God as our one and only God, as the first commandment tells us to do, all of our praise has to ultimately terminate on God in order to obey that first commandment. And I used uh, Pepsi as the example, that I can't just drink Pepsi and think about how great it is. I have to continue through my love of Pepsi to the God who made Pepsi. However, this second commandment is saying it would also be wrong to set up a can of Pepsi on our stage here in church and to start worshiping it because whenever we think of Pepsi, we're reminded of the God who created that delicious beverage. The God whose grace is so sweet to the taste. Ultimately, what God is saying here is that uh, what is provoking him to jealousy is that they're actually just worshiping the object, the image, rather than worshiping him directly. What we would be doing is just worshiping Pepsi when that worship should be going to him directly, because Pepsi is not our mediator between God and man. We have one mediator, Christ. And I think that brings us to the second reason why having images is wrong, which impacts really all we do as worshipers of God, particularly in a church setting. It is wrong to have another image, even if we're thinking that it helps us in our worship of God, because God determines how we worship Him. The first commandment was about who we worship. This one is about how we worship Him. You see, we aren't allowed to just do whatever we choose and to call it worship of God. He's given us instructions. He's given us clear guidance in his word as to how we should obey the commands that he's given us. Even our worship as we gather as a church is to be done according to his principles. In Leviticus 10, you may remember Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they offered what scripture called unauthorized fire to the Lord. And so, as they were giving him fire, he gave them fire. They were consumed by fire and died. They were doing what we would call acts of worship, right? An impartial third party might have thought that they were just being creative, that they were just trying something new in order to please God. But God destroyed them because he had told them exactly how to worship him. He told them exactly what to do, exactly how he expected them to come before him. And yet they disregarded his commands in favor of what they actually just wanted to do all along. You see, there's an idea in Christian worship called the regulative principle. It's the idea that all of our worship is regulated by Scripture, that God's Word regulates what we do when we gather to worship as a church. So what we do is we only do the things that He has given us to do. So on Sundays, we sing, we pray, we read His Word, we preach His Gospel, we observe the ordinances, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. That's what Scripture's given us to do so That's what we do. We don't do anything else. While it's possible that it may not necessarily be sin for us to do something else, to do something in addition to these things, since we haven't been given instructions as clearly as Aaron's sons in these matters, it may be possible for us to do something else and not be in sin. But we know it's so much safer just to stick to what Scripture said, right? God told us how to worship him. He's given us examples in his word for how to do that. So let's just do those things. We think it's best to stick to what Scripture has given us rather than adding a portion of our service to, let's say, interpretive dance. Where you interpret how, what the Lord is giving you through His Word in a dance performance for all of us to enjoy. Is that worship? Maybe, possibly, I think, we're not going to do it on a Sunday morning. Because we do what Scripture gave us. God determines how he is to be worshipped. So the creation of images, even in the hopes that they might aid our worship, that denies him that right. So it's wrong for us to create images. But even more so, I think the, the most foundational reason creating images of God to worship is wrong is because any image that we create of God is reductive. It tells a lie about God. Because when we make it, we say, this is what God is like. This represents him. But to create a true image of God, that's impossible for us. We just can't do it. So ultimately, to to do so and to say, yep, we did it. We nailed it. This golden calf is like God. When you really think about it, that's such an insult to the creator of the universe. Jen Wilkin, while in my study this week, pointed out this fact when she spoke to the problem with idols. And she said this, the idol is small, but God is immense. It is inanimate, but God is spirit. It is location bound, but God is everywhere, fully present. It is created, but God is uncreated. It is new, but God is eternal. It is impotent, but God is omnipotent. It is destructible, but God is indestructible. It is of minor value, but God is of infinite value. It is blind and deaf and mute. But God sees, hears, and speaks. See, this little idol, this little image that we might have created of God, it's not God. So how dare we say that it is? How silly of us to to make something and to think that we've somehow improved our understanding of the God of the universe. We've improved who he actually is by making this particular image to represent him in our worship. So a true image of God, that's just impossible. We don't have the tools as finite creatures to create an image of the infinite God. All of our images would be reductive. But even more so, I think we don't need images. I mean, if you think about it, God could have given us images if he wanted to, right? He could have made idols and said, Here, these are the idols. Worship me by worshiping this. He could have told us exactly what he wanted us to make in his image. He could have given us images. God, when giving us a revelation of himself, could have made a movie play in the clouds telling us who he is and what he's like. We could have had the Bible in Blu-ray form in the clouds before the cloud existed for all of eternity. Like CNN at the airport, you just see it. It's always there. And yet he didn't do that. He didn't give us an image to show us who he is. He gave us his word to show us who he is. He gave us a message to reveal himself to us, a book. Romans ten seventeen. do you remember? How does faith come? Through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So as Christians, we are a word-centered people. We are a people of the book, of this book, not of the picture, not of the image, So creating images to worship, even if we're trying to worship God through them, even if we might think our intentions are pure in that, it's wrong. That's what God's talking about here. So then that's why it's wrong. So how do we break this commandment? That's our second question. Because if you look around here, I don't think on our stage we have any images of God. I don't think we have any idols. I don't think we've created anything that we have in our building. If you look around our sanctuary, just like last week, you're not going to obviously see any kind of idolatry that we have here. There's no golden calf on an altar in most Christian churches that you would walk into. And yet, I still think that we break this commandment more often than we might think. And I'll give three ways. But before I get to those three ways that we break the commandment, I think I need to address something that you may have heard, you may have encountered, You may actually have thought of this yourself, or if you haven't, you probably will at some point, particularly in the next 30 seconds while I'm going to talk about it. People who typically fall in the more reformed doctrinal camp, people who would agree with me on a whole host of a thousand other things, have a fairly high and strict interpretation of this commandment in particular. It's not quite as high, not quite as strict as Uh, someone, let's say like the Amish, who would say that it is sinful for you to create another image of a human being. That's why they don't take pictures. That's why they uh, abhor any kind of images of a human. But most Reformed people wouldn't take it to, to that extent, but they might say that any representation of God violates this commandment. They even have an acronym for this, 2CV, Second Commandment Violation. You may have seen that at some point. And before I say why I'm not quite where they are with that, but before I get to the three ways that I think we do break this commandment, let me say that I appreciate that emphasis. I think they've got a real good point. They're reading the commandment. They're trying to follow it. They're interpreting the reasoning behind the commandment correctly. And even though I'm not quite where they are, I think they've got a point. I think they're putting a high value on what God has told us to do and to be. What they're trying to say is they're trying to say that if you see a picture of God, more commonly, more specifically, more often, of Jesus, the reason people like it is because it causes them to think of God. But that's the exact same reason that God gave us this commandment in the first place. He said, that's the problem. You're looking at the image and thinking of me through the image rather than thinking of me and only me in who I am. Just as we saw, those pictures, they don't do justice to the truth. Jesus didn't look like that, whatever that image might be. So if you see a picture of him and you think that that's what he looks like and that image causes you to worship, but then the image, the picture is wrong, ultimately, you're going to end up worshiping falsely, right? Not only that, I think over time, it starts to change our understanding of our own faith. You see, for a long time, particularly in America, Jesus was usually drawn to look actually very similar to how I look right now today. White guy, brown hair, maybe blonde, beard, surely a little bit longer, probably a little fuller on top. But he looked mostly like I do. And I think that even though we don't know what he looked like, I'm pretty sure he didn't look like I do. And whenever we see Jesus depicted looking like me, like a white guy in 2023, that eventually starts to make me, as a white guy, think that I'm already more like Jesus than everybody else. I already look like him. All I've got to do is get the motions down, and then we nailed it. And it makes people with a different skin color so often think that he's not like them. He's not for them. He's not their substitute in the same way that he is mine. So I think if we were all too severe, if we all just had a clear, no depictions of Jesus policy, I think we might be able to get around that issue. So then I think the question becomes, wait, so why don't I agree with them? Why do I think it's not necessarily sin to create a graphical depiction of God or for a man to, let's say, play Jesus in a TV show? Well, I do think we have to remember that this is an Old Testament command. It was given before the incarnation of Jesus. So any depiction wouldn't have been correct, particularly of animals or angels or whatever. That's what the the verses are particularly talking about, as a representation of God who had no body. They wouldn't have been right. But once Jesus has taken a body to himself, one that he still has, by the way, today, then I think we have to readjust our understanding of this command, as we'll see in our third and fourth questions whenever we get there. So now, even though I'm still sympathetic to the 2CV crowd, to people who have a hard stance on this, I think they have a point. And I do think if we're going to err, if we're going to make a mistake, let's err on the side of no depictions of God, of... No depictions of Jesus. But I don't think it's quite the hard and fast rule that it was whenever God gave it to us in the Old Testament. So I also don't think that writing 2CV under every single Facebook post you've ever seen of the chosen is necessarily the best thing to do for any of those people or for us today. So then how do we break this commandment? If we don't break it in that sense, how do we break it? Well, first, I think we break this commandment by constructing our own image of God. The Israelites, in Exodus 32, with the golden calf, they broke this commandment very clearly. But again, the problem isn't just that they made an image and worshipped it. It's that they thought that this image of God was God for them. And the image that they created of God in their minds was false. That image had nothing to do with how he had revealed himself to be. He never once told them, I'm like a calf made of gold. And then they made that image. He told them that he was, I am. He said, I am the God who is. He told them he had made a covenant promise to bless their ancestors and to make a new people. He delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh with his own power and might. They already knew all of these things about God, and yet somehow they interpreted all of that through their own lens and came out with a golden calf. A newborn cow. Not mighty, but docile. Not big, but manageable. Not something to be feared, but something to be used. You See, they had a wrong idea of God, and that became evident through the idol that they created. So we do the same thing today when we get God wrong. We do the same thing when we come up with some picture in our heads of who God is. Whenever that picture doesn't line up with who he's revealed himself to be. You see, anything you think of the God you worship that doesn't line up with Scripture... That is an image that you're bowing down to. That's a God you have constructed for yourself that you're worshiping rather than the real thing. But we break this commandment today not just by coming up with our own image of God, which is wrong. We also break it by thinking that we have a handle on the fullness of God. We break it by thinking that we've got God figured out, that he is like X. He's like a golden calf. Just like what Jen Wilkin was saying earlier, whatever you think he's like, that doesn't contain the fullness of who he is. For you to construct an image of him to worship is to limit your conception of what he's like. You see, he is bigger, he's better, he's more, he's denser, he's above whatever you currently think him to be. So don't settle for an image. Don't think that you who gets a headache filing your taxes has a perfect grasp on who the God of all the universe is. We break this commandment by reducing him to anything less than his perfect Godhood. But within the context of these specific verses this morning, I think we also break this commandment by forgetting specifically his judgment or his mercy. Look back at our verses five and six. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So we shouldn't make an image for ourselves because he's a jealous God. We shouldn't bow down or serve them because this God visits the iniquity of those who hate him for generations, but shows steadfast love. To those who love him for thousands of generations. You see, images, they don't show mercy, they don't judge. The calf wasn't condemning or saving anyone. In fact, today, if we were to construct our own idea of God in our heads, apart from Scripture, we would obviously end up shortchanging one of those two ideas, at least of God's character. We lessen his justice just enough so that I squeak through, so that I don't get judged, but the other people that I think should get judged, they get judged. We lessen his mercy just enough to condemn our enemies, just enough so the people we think are going to get what they deserve, that they actually do get what we think they deserve. But this God that we are to love and to serve and to bow before, he is perfect in both justice and mercy and he won't let us forget about that. Even in a list of rules, of do's and don'ts, God has to remind us of who he is, of his nature, of the gospel. He has to remind us that we are a sinful people who hate him and who deserve our iniquities back on our own heads. And yet, he is a steadfast, loving God who shows mercy to those who turn from their sins and turn toward him in love and faith. And even I think the proportions here are meaningful. He's not saying that the sins of a father are going to stay with that family for three to four generations. And he's also not saying that a believing father guarantees love and mercy for his family for thousands of generations. He's showing us that just as he is quick to hold the sinner accountable, as diligent as he is to make sure that those who hate him receive their due, that there is a judgment coming from him, He is much more so adamant in love, abundant in love and mercy toward those who love him. He's saying, yeah, yeah, absolutely. The sinner will be held accountable in every generation, third, fourth, whatever, as long as it takes. But my steadfast love will still be here for thousands of generations, thousands upon thousands of people My mercy will not run out before it gets to you. You've heard me say something similar to that before. I think it's something we're likely going to display on a wall here in the church soon. Richard Sibbs in the bruised reed said, There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. That's why we sing that song, His mercy is more, so often. That's the idea that God is conveying here in the second commandment. yes. To the one with iniquity, they will receive their due to the third and the fourth generation. But to the one who loves him, they will receive abundant love and steadfast mercy for thousands of generations. To our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. So then how has Jesus fulfilled this for us? In order for everything I just said to be true, in order for Christ to have mercy to give to us, he had to fulfill the law for us. So how did he do that with this commandment specifically? How has Jesus fulfilled or transformed this for us? Well, I think simply and obviously, as the true God, he lived a life which glorified the true God with every breath that he breathed. He had perfect knowledge of the triune God and never settled for. He was never distracted by anything else. When he prayed, he knew exactly to whom he was praying. Every moment for him was an act of self-worship of the true God, as he truly is. But Christ not only fulfilled this command by following it, he transformed it by being the incarnate image of God himself. Hebrews 1 verses 3 and 4 say this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You see, he's the exact imprint of God. Colossians says he is the image, the icon of God. And he's not a lesser image. He's not a cheap knockoff. He is God in the flesh. The calf wasn't God's image because it wasn't like him, but Christ is God's image because he is him. So when we worship Jesus, we don't do so as the next best thing. We don't worship Jesus because that's the best thing we have in front of us to be able to worship. It's not as if we'd love to have an image of the triune God to worship, but I guess we'll settle for this Jesus God. No, if we worship Christ, we are worshiping the Father and the Spirit also because we're worshiping God. We don't need Jesus just because he gives us access to something greater. He is the something greater that we have access to. While Pepsi is not the mediator between God and man, Christ is the mediator between God and man. When we worship him as God's image, we are worshiping God. So we fulfill this commandment. I think now, in light of that, by worshiping him. The Christ who is God's image, it's important to point out, I think, though, is the Christ who is revealed in Scripture. That's how we see him as the image of God. That's how we know who he is. That's how we know what he's done. Anything else that someone might believe in, if they said, I don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible, I believe in the historical Jesus, they might believe in the Jesus they've imagined for themselves. That's, that's not the real thing. The Jesus who is God's image is revealed in Scripture. So then what do we do about this? It's our final question this morning. In light of everything we've just said, as New Testament Christians, after Christ has both fulfilled and transformed this commandment, how are we now to obey and follow it? Well, I think just like last week, and perhaps just like every week we're going to see, we obey this command by worshiping God in Christ. He is God. He is the image of God. So no, we shouldn't make one of anything else when we can worship the one true perfect God in the flesh. He's the reason that God is able to both hold accountable the sinner and to show steadfast love to his people. Because he came to live a perfect life which fulfilled the law before he died a death that we should have died before he rose from the grave to give us the life that we so desperately need. We should hear that message, that gospel of salvation. We should respond to that message with repentance and faith. We should believe all these things about Jesus, all that the scriptures say about who he is, his person and work. We should turn from our sin and toward the one who saved us, denying ourselves, taking up our own cross, following him, But as we seek to worship God in Christ, I think we have to do that according to the truth. We have to seek to worship the true God truly. Which means that we worship him as he's revealed himself in scripture. We aren't allowed, we don't get to conjure our own ideas of who he is or what he's like. We don't allow ourselves to think that the God we want to worship wouldn't do this. The God I want to worship wouldn't say that. So that passage must just be wrong. I'll just ignore that one. I'll skip it whenever it comes to that portion in my Bible reading. We can't be a people who freestyle the Christian religion, just changing our worship and ideas all the time. We have to be a people of the book who conform our beliefs and practices to what God has revealed, continuing to press into that book to find a greater and deeper understanding the entire time. We can't settle for anything less than God to worship. We can't allow ourselves to be drawn in by an American red, white, and blue God. We can't allow ourselves to be drawn in by an all-loving, all-affirming rainbow God of the sexual revolution. We have to seek, to believe, to trust and worship the real and true God of the Bible in every aspect of our lives. We can't settle for images. We have to come to know his justice that we might pursue it in this world. We have to come to know his love, that we might show that love to all who are around us. We have to come to know his mercy and grace, that we might not only participate in it, but that we might spread it. We have to come to know his books so that our answers to the largest questions of life, they don't come from our parents, they don't come from our instincts or the nightly news. They come from his word, his revelation. I even think this verse is encouraging us toward having a more spiritual and a less material, less physical emphasis in our faith. You see, a command to avoid worshiping images is a command to, in some sense, widen our perspective beyond what is merely physical, what is merely material right in front of us. For instance, I think we have to be reminded that this building is not the church. It's not God's house you are the church. You are God's house. These steps up here, it's not an altar with a special anointing where your prayers count for double whenever you come forward and pray. God hears you just as fervently in your seat or in your car or in your bed or at your kitchen table as he does right here up front on the stage at the end of the service. The water in the Jordan River in Israel today is no more holy, no more clean, no more extra baptism than the water behind me in the baptistry here in this church. Location doesn't determine where you worship God. The physical doesn't determine where you worship God. It's not the physical material things that aid us in our worship. It's a reminder that our God is spirit, which should widen our perspective. It's not that the physical is more real than the spiritual. It's that it is less real than the spiritual. And I think we have to be reminded of that. All those things that I just said are true. Being baptized again in Israel isn't another baptism any more than when you slip in the tub and accidentally go just a little bit too far under. It's not that the physical doesn't matter. It's that the physical isn't the fullness of what matters. Our God, who is spirit with no body, should be worshiped as if that's the case. Even more so than a physical representation of your faith points you to the worship of God, I think it actually tends to limit your worship of God. You think, that's what I do in this room and this time, in this place, with these people, rather than thinking, that's what I do wherever I go. That's the same God I talk to every moment of every day. It's the same God that dwells within me, wherever I am. So I think this ultimately has to then impact our teaching, our preaching, our praying, the, uh, the singing that we do here on a Sunday morning. Thomas Watson, in my study this week, as I was reading, he said this. He pointed out that this was really one of the problems that we saw throughout all of ancient Israel, throughout the, really the church's history as well, said, idolatry came in at first by the want of good preaching. The people began to have golden images when they had wooden priests. And I think I need to remember as your pastor that it is my job to continue to expand your vision of who God is. To continue to deepen your understanding of what he's like. To continue to push you back to this book for everything that you believe. To say that no, no, no. He's bigger than that. He's better than that. You might think you've got him down and you haven't even scratched the surface. I think that's my job. I can't allow you to settle for a constructed image of God. I can't allow myself to preach the understanding of God I have right now at 30 years old without ever expanding, without ever deepening that knowledge. I have to every week continue to draw your eyes away from the physical, material things around you and back toward the spiritual reality of the God of the universe before you. Every week, every time. I have to remind you of the God before whom we shall have no others and by whom nothing lesser shall we worship. I hope that I've done so today and I hope to do so next week as we turn to the third commandment. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for your word through which you've revealed yourself. Thank you for this commandment for us to obey. But even more so than the commandment, thank you for the grace that we're given whenever we break it. Thank you for the chance, the hope of salvation through Jesus Christ and his gospel, who is the image of God. Thank you for his sacrifice in our place, his perfect life which fulfilled the law, his resurrection which gives us the hope and promise, the blessed assurance of a new and future life waiting for us. Thank you for his ascension into heaven where we know he now reigns, even still in bodily form, over all of your creation. That gives us the hope, the steadfast promise, that same resurrection, that same resurrection, is going to be waiting for us. Help for us not to settle for images, but to worship the real thing. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.